У нас нет закрытых тем для сотрудничества. Мы сотрудничаем по всем направлениям. И самое главное, мы никогда не ставили перед собой Китайская Народная Республика и Беларусь задачу, чтобы дружить или работать против третьих стран, против кого бы то ни было. Even as its invasion of Ukraine falters, Russia has clearly not given up on its ambitions to effectively absorb and annex Belarus. A leaked Kremlin strategy document lays out a detailed plan for Moscow to take full control of Belarus by 2030, eliminating what little is left of Belarusian sovereignty. So how is the planned Russian takeover of Belarus related to Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine, and how might the Belarusians react? We got just the guests to help us unpack it all, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams, Oregon neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the Dowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. And for the purposes of today's program, Michael's also the author of a recent report for Yahoo News about Russia's planned takeover of Belarus. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Happy to be here, Brian. Happy to have you. Joining us from Dallas in the great state of Texas is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to the vertical, David. Thanks very much, Brian, and great to be with Michael. Great, great to have you both. So, Michael, your report on this leaked document couldn't have been more timely from my perspective, as I've been looking for an excuse to dive back into the Belarus question. So thanks for giving me one, and congratulations on a great report. Uh, prior to its invasion of Ukraine a year ago, Moscow had been steadily expanding its military, economic, and political footprint in Belarus. Russian military had been rotating through Belarus so frequently that it effectively constituted a de facto permanent troop presence. Russian oligarchs were snapping up Belarusian economic assets, and of course, Alexander Lukashenko allowed Putin to use Belarus as a staging ground for the invasion. Michael, to get us started, explain to our listeners what this leaked document reveals and what it may mean. So um, this is a project that uh, was a joint investigation with a host of um, international media outlets, and just to name a few, uh, Delphi in Estonia, Süddeutsche uh, Zeitung in Germany, the Dossier Center in London. And yeah, I mean, we were very, we assessed with high confidence that this document was, was authentic uh, for reasons I can't really get into without divulging too much about the sourcing. However, uh, it was a document that was cooked up by the presidential administration of Vladimir Putin, and specifically the Directorate for Cross-Border uh, Policy, is it? I'm sorry, Cross-Border Cooperation. Um, and according to our sources, uh, the input for this document came from a host of military intelligence uh, actors, including GRU, the SVR, the FSB, and the general staff of Russia. And what this document envisages is the essentially the, the complete incorporation of the country of Belarus into the Russian Federation by 2030. 
Um, this is part of the so-called union state concept, which dates back to the 1990s, but was really fitfully in, implemented under the Yeltsin administration, and even frankly, under most of Putin's own presidency until around 2018, when clearly, you know, the, the Russian leader had much more of a revanchist, uh, geopolitically ambitious goal, which to quote the current president, constituted uh, or, or consisted of reconstituting as much of the former Soviet empire as he possibly could. Now, there are certain areas that have been denied to him, namely um, uh, the countries that were part of the USSR or the former Warsaw Pact nations that are now in NATO, such as the three Baltic states uh, and Poland. However, doing Italy, he can do in Belarus through non-military means, through this kind of creeping state capture. And this document uh, consisted of different um, timelines, um, the short term, the mid midterm and the long term. And as I say, the culminating sort of result is meant to be by 2030. So what we're in 2023, that's about seven years. And this is encompassing. This is comprehensive. So it includes a single currency, which clearly would be the Russian ruble. Um, it includes uh, more military infrastructure being hosted on Belarusian territory, but of Russian uh, origin, which would make the entire state of Belarus and its armed forces at the mercy of Putin's next military adventure, should he choose to have one. Uh, it includes intelligence incorporation. Uh, so, I mean, look, I, I don't think anybody's under any illusions that citizens of Belarus can easily be recruited uh, and, or seconded by the Russian security services, but this essentially legitimize, legitimates that and legalizes it. Um, there are other aspects of it, too, in terms of agriculture and the Belarusian economy. So, for instance, <clears throat> um, uh, Belarus exports a lot of its goods, uh, potash and so on, from Baltic ports, no longer under this plan. Uh, the ports would now be St. Petersburg, which you can imagine would open up all whole new vistas for corruption and graft uh, on the part of the Russian authorities. So essentially, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it means the end of the independent sovereign state of Belarus, such as it has existed since you know, 1991, uh, and essentially Russian Federation territory gaining a country uh, that consists of what, 10 million, almost 10 million people. Um, and this, of course, is a direct threat to Eastern Europe, particularly the NATO member states that I just mentioned, Poland, the Baltics. Um, and, uh, you know, if if the war in Ukraine should last for very much longer, if this, this union state policy should be sped up at the behest of Putin, um, that, that could pose sundry right. other complications for, you know, our Ukraine policy. Uh, but here's the interesting thing about this. Um, Alexander Lukashenko, Ironically enough, in the in the, the 90s, when the union state concept sort of was first introduced, he saw himself as the senior partner in this because the Yeltsin government was quite weak and Yeltsin himself was this, you know, shambolic drunken figure and Russia was sort of on its knees. Uh, now, however, the roles are reversed in dramatic fashion, right? Lukashenko is a wholly owned subsidiary of Vladimir Putin. He is a client par excellence, and that is largely a result of his brutal repression of the pro-democracy movement in 2020 when, I mean, he is not the legitimate president of Belarus, according to the United States and European Union, right? Um, and the only the only friend he's got left in the neighborhood is Russia. So he is apparently, not apparently, I mean, it's been well reported, including by ourselves, um, chafing under the, the this proposed structure. I mean, he is forfeiting his country. He is going to become uh, less of a dictator 
and more of a, a, a servant really to the Russian dictatorship under this this sort of grand design. Now, what's interesting is when we when when our investigation was was published, uh, Belta Belarusian state media titled it, you know, a fake document. However, uh, one of their reporters uh, interviewed or questioned Lukashenko, who said, well, this this document may have existed a couple of years ago, I mean, which is as good as a, of a confirmation of its legitimacy uh, and authenticity as I, as I could come by. Um, and just so your, your listeners know, according to our source, the, the date of this uh, document's uh, uh, origin or, or drafting was the fall of 2021. So it okay. precedes the invasion of Ukraine. And if, if you want to get, I, I shouldn't even say conspiratorial, I think if you just want to be logical in terms of what Putin had envisaged in the next few years coming from even before 2021, the, there was going to be a war in Ukraine. Obviously, the, the capture of Belarus had to proceed apace. And uh, again, this is this is trying to cobble together as much of the kind of what a rump state of of the, the former Russian and Soviet empire as as he can can manage. Um, and my understanding is this comes out of Dmitry Kozak's shop in, the, in yes. the presidential administration. That means it's serious, right? In my opinion, if something comes out of Kozak's shop, he's Putin's Mr. Fix-It. He's like uh, Mr. Wolf on Pulp Fiction for Putin. He fixes problems. Um, and if Kozak's people are on this, then that suggests to me that this is very serious. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I wish I could get into more of the, the sourcing of this. But, um, you know, when we were sort of trying to adjudicate whether or not this might be something that was old or perhaps now obsolete, defunct, um, we were told in no uncertain terms. I, I think the, the the expression that we were given was the chances of this not being real and serious uh, are zero. Right. Um, so it is absolutely in earnest. It is absolutely a, a valid document. And I mean, look, a lot of this, it, it's it's a strange kind of story because you know, I guess the most critical reaction we got was, duh, you know, everybody knew about the union state concept and no one's under, um, um, there's no mystery as to what Putin is is intending to do with respect to Belarus. But this is from the horse's mouth. This is the thing itself, as they say, right? I mean, we now have their their schematic, their plan of action, and we have a time frame for it. Now, the one thing I, I should also add is the war in Ukraine, because it has not gone so swimmingly for the Kremlin has slowed down this process mm-hmm. of incorporating Belarus, but it has by no means put a stop to it. So right. this is still very much viable. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a process we've all been observing. Uh, and it's interesting, the, the origin of the documents 2021, and at least since August 20, we've been w- witnessing this acceleration of this one. Both you and I, Michael, have called at various points a soft annexation of Belarus. I'm going to bring David into the discussion. David, you worked on Belarus uh, during your time in government. Did anything in this document surprise you? And what, if anything, do you think it indicates? Well, first, kudos to Michael and and the fellow journalists who uh, broke this story, reported on it, uncovered the document. Um, it, it is an important story. Um, and it doesn't surprise me. Um, as Michael said, this has been underway for quite a while, going back to 99 when the Union Treaty was first proposed. And Michael's absolutely right that Lukashenko had in mind from the beginning that he would be the big kingpin right. in this um, when Yeltsin was still president and has lost some interest in this. The problem Lukashenko faces, of course, is that he remains wholly dependent on Putin for staying in power. And so he, in the process over the years, but particularly last year, 
has sacrificed to a great extent Belarus's independence and sovereignty. And so we already see, I, I take Michael's point that it's slowed down a bit, but to some extent it is already well underway. Right. I think 2030 is a conservative estimate when this may be finalized. Right. The, the main thing that has been held up is the actual signing of the union state agreement. And um, there may be even some reluctance on the side of Moscow of having responsibility for taking care of the nearly 10 million people in Belarus. They'd rather just control them, uh, shut the door on any Western orientation that they may envision. And yet, uh, as you pointed out in your introduction, Brian, the, the Belarus was the staging ground for part of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia seems to have free access to any parts of Belarus territory uh, to do what it wants against Ukraine. The one big missing piece so far is that Lukashenko has not agreed to send his army, his military, in to join the battle. And I think the reason he has not, and my guess is even Putin might understand this, is that could wind up leading to Lukashenko's getting toppled, um, where I think the resistance to such an order would be so significant yeah. that that could wind up being his undoing. Right. There's also fears that Belarusian troops, once they enter Ukraine, will flip sides. I've heard uh, some reports citing Belarusian officers that there's real legitimate fears in that. There's a lot to drill into here. Um, one of the question whether the, the war in Ukraine will will accelerate or hinder this process. I think you can make an argument in both directions. Um, but before we get into a lot of these other these other aspects of it, David, there's also Lukashenko was in the news recently with his state visit to China. Um, and how did you interpret this? Was this an errand for Putin? What was Lukashenko do? What was the purpose of this this uh, this this high profile visit to Beijing? Um, this state visit when he when he met with Xi Jinping um, and in the context of this leaked document in, in Russia's plans. Yeah, it looks like I think wants to keep all of his options open and he may be concerned, in fact, that Russia is losing the war and looks to China to step in and provide some additional support. I, I'm not sure the Chinese are going to hang their hat on Lukashenko, to be honest, um, but he was welcomed at the highest levels in Beijing and uh, may be trying to impress upon the Chinese to provide military assistance to Ukraine that, uh, sorry, to Russia that the Chinese have so far at least not overtly done. There are these stories about uh, technology that China's provided that are dual use uh, that has been helping Russia in, in reprogramming some of its weapon systems. Um, but China so far has not gone ahead despite concerns expressed by Secretary Blinken and others in the U.S. government and the intelligence community that China appears to be moving in this direction. So my guess is that Lukashenko was there to try to twist the arms of the Chinese leadership to the extent he's able to do so. But China's also had a fairly close relationship with Lukashenko over the years and has uh, been an important trade partner for Belarus. And like Putin, China doesn't want to see Lukashenko removed from power as a result of a popular movement. This is where Putin and Xi have something in common. They don't like to see like-minded leaders driven from power as a result of popular protest. So uh, Lukashenko, I think, is in a bit of a, a, a box here. Uh, but struggling to maintain as many options as he can as he looks at what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine and saying that things aren't going so swimmingly. Michael, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I echo David's um, analysis here, and I would add this. Um, th there is evidence that 
um, he is worried about uh, what would happen to his regime, meaning Lukashenko, in the event that he uh, became, I mean, I would I would characterize him as a co-combatant in the war already. I mean, Belarus staging ground for the initial invasion, uh, Russian fighter jets, uh, rockets continue to be launched from Belarusian territory. I mean, more so than, for instance, Iran, uh, which has provided these Shahid drones to Russia. Um, Belarus has been an active participant. Um, but uh, we have seen things, uh, including acts of sabotage along the Belarusian rail networks in the very early days of the war. Just in the last week after the story came out, um, there was the uh, destruction, not destruction, the damaging of a reconnaissance plane, a Russian reconnaissance plane on Belarusian uh, and Belarus in tarmac using a drone, which who knows who did that? It could have been the Ukrainians. It could have been the Belarusian resistance. Uh, and I, I can tell you from other reporting I've done, uh, Ukraine's military psychological operations, which had targeted Russian soldiers in the early days of the war, was seen as as almost um, completely uh, useless, meaning that the response from the Russians was, you know, F you, we're coming, we're going to rape your women and, and steal your land and all that. However, uh, similar efforts targeting Belarusian soldiers was met with uh, much greater success. In other words, the Belarusian soldiers were replying in the affirmative that they agree this war is a disaster, they don't want any part of it. Uh, and, and I would also add this, uh, do you remember the story when uh, it was leaked, the um, the Federal Express or whatever the um, the international shipping uh, companies in Belarus are. There was CCTV footage of R Russian soldiers who had withdrawn from Kiev with all of these stolen goods from the Ukrainian homes that they had occupied, uh, you know, computers and electronic devices. And that footage showed basically that what was widely known that they had committed mass looting. Um, the according to Christo Groza of Bellingcat, that footage was obtained by sources in Lukashenko's own KGB, which is the, the name of the security services inherited from the Soviet period. So there are intelligence officers in Belarus who are deeply hostile if, to the war, if not in principle, then just out of pragmatic self-preservation because they realize, they see the writing on the wall that this could spell the end of their reign. Um, and yeah, I think I think even more so than inside Russia, internal dissent and and opposition to to this campaign is severe and that's something that lukashenko appreciates more acutely probably than putin uh, i remember querying um, a, a diplomat here in new york um, at the united nations i want to say eight months ago very early days of the war and i was told um that the intel that that was kind of kicking around turtle bay was putin keeps telling lukashenko when are you going to go in and Luca comes back and says, uh, oh, I need three weeks. I need three weeks to prepare. And it, it's like that scene from you Princess Wyatt, that, you actually. know, the, the dread pirate Roberts, oh, most likely kill you tomorrow, Wesley. Good good show today. And that, that just keeps going on and on and on for months and years. Same thing. Luca kicks the can down the street. Putin says, are you ready? Uh -huh. No, nope, need more time. So, you know, he clearly does not want any part of this, this war, at least, uh, you know, any a direct part. Um, so, you know, look, I think these are pressure points and vulnerabilities that can be exploited by savvy Western statecraft. They're already being exploited, as far as I, I can tell. And, you know, crippling sanctions on Belarus on top of what has already been imposed as a result of the 2020 election theft and suppression is is, is just not something that, that he really needs at this point. Um, right. More beholden to Russia. 
And I want to pick up on that 2020 election theft because there are a lot of there are, there are those who believe that Putin's decision to the ultimate decision to invade Ukraine was made in the aftermath of those 2020 protests in Belarus. He was already Ukraine was already. So I think I think there are factors internal to Ukraine that were more determinative. But there are those that are arguing that the 2020 protests in Belarus uh, basically, Putin decided it's now or never. He's got to move on both of these countries. Um, and I, I've often ha- hypothesized that he wanted to do this in 2022 for symbolic reasons. The centenary of the founding of the Soviet Union um, last year was. But this question that you both have raised, I want to drill into it a little bit. The degree to which the conduct of the war and the, the direction of the war in, in Ukraine will influence, will either hinder or will accelerate this process of Belarus. You can make the argument either way. Russia losing the war effectively means it's not going to have the bandwidth to pull this off, or Russia losing the war might make Putin say, well, I got to grab something, right? So it may as well be Belarus. Do either of you have any thoughts on which of these, uh, if if either, is, is, is the case? I am a firm believer that if we help Ukraine win in, in, in the war, and by when, let me define it as driving every Russian invading and occupying force from Ukrainian territory, which is, of course, including Crimea. I think that will then uh, prompt a huge change in Belarus as well. I think Putin will be so consumed with internal dynamics as a result of that process that his ability to continue to support Lukashenko will be weakened. But more importantly, I think the people of Belarus will feel emboldened as a result of a Ukrainian victory. The country I'm worried about in the case of a uh, Russian defeat in Ukraine is Moldova, mm-hmm. uh, where I think it is uh, a, a country that is essentially defenseless. There are already about 12 to 1500 Russian forces on the ground in Transnistria. There, I think Putin might want to try to uh, snatch a little victory from the jaws of defeat in the in the face of a Ukrainian victory. But um, I, I think Putin won't be in a strong position to continue his support for Lukashenko in Belarus, which may also in part explain Lukashenko's trip to Beijing uh, this week. Right. No, in the event of a Russian victory, which looks extremely unlikely at this point, not just Moldova, I'd be worried about Georgia. I'd be, of course, Belarus would be a done deal, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. We're either going to get some kind of a frozen conflict or we're going to get a Ukrainian victory, uh, one or the other. Michael, any thoughts on this, on whether on the, on the way the war turns out in Ukraine, how it's going to hinder or accelerate this process with Belarus? Well, nobody likes a weak strongman. And if Putin loses in Ukraine and loses definitively, um, you know, we can get into what that would look like. Um, I personally think that, you know, rather than the full liberation of Crimea, you're going to see the neutralization of Crimea. So long range strikes, uh, kind of shaping operations, the relocation again of the Black Sea Fleet, things that that make it very unstable for the entrenched Russian occupation going back uh, nine years, if not pushing the Russians out to February uh, 24, 2022 borders. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that's going to have knock on repercussions. Um, I think that, you know, Lukashenko will see even more of the writing on the wall and realize that, you know, now is the time to try and, however, vainly reingratiate himself with the West. He's done this before, right? You know, he's been sanctioned for human rights violations and he comes crawling and making overtures to the EU. They're not sincere or he's just kind of testing the waters. 
Um, but, you know, the extent to which Russia will control this country, meaning Belarus, I think will be greatly diminished in the face of, of military defeat. Because, you know, Russia will have to also get its own house in order after a catastrophic loss like this. Um, there's right. going to be vast internal political destabilization. I'm not quite buying, you know, a lot of people are, are suggesting oh, the Putin regime is, is strong and he's, you know, spent so many years kind of shoring up his, his, his security apparatus and his, I, I, I really, I, I think, it's more of a house of cards than it seems. Exactly. Um, and it's always that way, right? You know, the assessments are everything is, is, you know, solid and, and unbreakable. And then all of a sudden it collapses. Until it's, until it's not. Yeah. Until it's not. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for instance, the loss of Mariupol to Russia, uh, given how much has been invested in a taking the city militarily, but then also, you know, the, their attempted show trials of Azov fighters and all the rest of it, the, the land bridge to Crimea. Th these are going to be losses that sting and sting badly. You're already seeing it with this kind of faction fighting between the Ministry of Defense and the general staff, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, Ramzan Kadyrov, the military bloggers. I mean, look at what happened in Bryansk uh, yesterday uh, and how that sort of set Russia light and realized, oh, wait, we don't even have control of our own borders anymore, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it would be gravely destabilizing to his regime and his geopolitical ambitions if he lost the war, um, which is one, one of the main arguments, I think, in addition to the humanitarian, uh, you know, and moral ones to, to make sure that he does lose it. Um, you know, this is this is something that the European Union and I think the center of gravity now in Europe has shifted away from Paris, Berlin and toward Warsaw, really, and frankly, oh, yes. Baltic states. Um, so it is absolutely in their interest to, to ensure that, that, you know, both Putin loses in Ukraine and then cannot achieve his goals with respect to Belarus. No, uh, go ahead, David. Well, I just wanted to jump in and say um, for anyone listening who thinks that, well, maybe we shouldn't push for a Ukrainian victory because that could be bad for Moldova. It could be bad for Belarus. On the contrary. Mm -hmm. Russia's already absorbed Belarus for all intents and purposes. The the union state is just the official icing on the cake, if you will. Um, Moldova may be in trouble um, even more if Russia were to win in Ukraine. And a, a, I agree with you, Brian. I think a Russian victory is really now completely out of the question. But what we should be focusing on, and we've talked about this before, is helping Ukraine win. Helping defeat Russia because a Russian defeat could have such positive reverberations throughout the region and frankly around the globe that that's where our goal should be. That's where our objective should be. Um, I, I appreciate and understand when President Biden says we're with Ukraine as long as it takes. I wish he'd either change that to until Ukraine wins or with them as long as it takes until Ukraine wins. That should be our objective. There's there's so much positive that would come from this. And I think a scenario in which the Russian military collapses, given the staggering toll that they've already incurred from this invasion, uh, Prigozhin and others are now saying they're recruiting in sports clubs because apparently Russian prisoners are refusing to join the campaign, knowing that they will just be thrown in as, as cannon fodder. The Russians, I think we have to be careful not to exaggerate their ability to sustain this campaign. Right. The, the, it, the, there is, I think, a limit. Uh, Ukraine obviously also is, is uh, incurring a terrible toll, but they know why they're fighting. The Russians right. have no idea why they're fighting other than Putin woke up one day and decided to invade them.
Right. And lest anybody think Russia doesn't have its eyes on Moldova this week, there were pro-Moscow demonstrations in Kishinev. Um, And they were small, but nevertheless troubling. Um, On the issue of Belarus, I mean, I think just like in Ukraine, Putin thinks this would be easy to absorb Belarus the way he's trying to do it. I'm not so sure about that. David, you and I talked over the years about the changing aspects of Belarusian society. And how they about Belarusian society is increasingly, especially since 2020, looking west. Um, I'm wondering if Putin might get a nasty surprise in Belarus, just like he got a nasty surprise in Kiev. And we had all these sabotage efforts in the railways that you mentioned. Um, we have public opinion polls showing that Belarusians look to the period of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania as the kind of like the, what they want to draw inspiration from. Um, Belarusian state symbols that are not Soviet are, have become increasingly popular. Um, do you think maybe Putin's going to miscalculate in, uh, in Belarus just like he did in Ukraine and get a nasty surprise? He, he usually does. I mean, he, it, his and, and the Kremlin's understanding of their closest neighbors is awful. Um, they, they don't understand these people. And obviously, they don't understand that invading neighbors tends to repel the populations in these places rather than win them over. He had an opportunity in August of 2020 to side with the vast majority of people in Belarus, and he chose not to. Instead, he sided with a brutal dictator who's been in power now for almost 30 years. And his his support for Lukashenko is what has kept him in power. And, and, and most of the people in Belarus know that. So he has essentially turned a country that was at worst neutral and probably even more pro-Russian into a country that has very anti-Russian views as a result of Putin's uh, willingness to sustain Lukashenko in power. So he, he doesn't get Belarus. He certainly doesn't get Ukraine. Um, and he doesn't get the other countries in the region, I'd argue, as well. Invading is not the best tool to win people yeah. over. Well, I don't expect him to invade Belarus. I expect it to be this, what we call, we've all called a soft annexation, right? The expansion of Russia's military, economic, and political footprint there, like boiling a frog. And before you know it, it's boiled. Right. But, uh, but I mean, it's clear that the people of Belarus in August 2020 voted against Lukashenko. They voted for Tsikhanovskaya. Yeah. And um, instead, Putin decided to cast his vote, which turned out to be the deciding vote in favor of uh, a person that most people voted against. They're sick right. and tired of him. Michael, any thoughts on this before we move into the second half and talk about what the West should do? Well, yeah, I mean, you've already got one calamity on your hands where, I mean, to hear the UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace put it, 97% of Russia's land forces are currently in Ukraine. I mean, you know, Japan could invade <laughs> the <laughs> Russian Far East now and get away with it. I mean, that that's how catastrophic this, this effort has been. So, I mean, one can imagine a scenario in which, you know, all of a sudden the Russians in their infinite wisdom come out and say, oh, OK, we're, we're taking over Belarus or we're going to incorporate. One of the, the aspects of the, the report I, I should mention is the installation in the uh, elite political establishment in Belarus of pro-Russian actors. So essentially a, a satrapy, right? Uh, if this were to, to come to light and the Belarusian population, or at least a sufficient plurality of it, rose up and protested, is Putin going to go all in and help Lukashenko again suppress that kind of protest whilst he's having this campaign go sideways uh, in the south in Ukraine? Um, can he walk and chew gum at the same time? I don't think so. Uh, and again, you know, to David's point, we tend to con- one of the, the, the lessons of this war, there have been many, but it has in record time 
within the space of a year, actually less than a year, because a lot of these lessons should have been learned within the first six to eight months, debunks so many myths that have been built up and assimilated into our, our own kind of conceptual geopolitical framework with, with regards to Russia policy. You know, myth number one, Putin's army is the shiniest and brightest and newest and, and can wipe the floor with everybody, including NATO. Well, look how that went. Uh, myth number two, if he feels like his nose is sufficiently bloodied, if he feels like he is losing, or if he is, suffers a humiliation, he's going to resort to something really dire like WMD. Now you're hearing Toria Newland and other U.S. officials bang on and on and on. The Financial Times last week reported in their big expose about how people like Sergei Lavrov did not know about this war, that it was it was a tightly guarded secret within Putin's inner sanctum, that the uh, Putin himself has now realized that using a tactical nuke in Ukraine, A, won't give him a battlefield advantage, and B, will only alienate even more of his dwindling cadre of allies. China's so, told him, don't you dare. China's told him not to do it. And so all of a sudden, you know, remember, and you still see this trend on Twitter every like 72 hours, World War III. But this suddenly this this option is now off the table. Jake Sullivan at the Aspen Security Forum last summer said we cannot provide Ukraine with attackums because we're trying to avoid a scenario of sleepwalking into World War Three. Well, now to hear the administration tell it, the issue about attackums is oh, the Ukrainians don't really need them. And oh, we have our own supply chain problems. We, we're running out of attackums. We don't want to give it to Ukraine because then what, what if we need them? I mean, all this kind of bullshit excuse making. But, you know, the administration briefs against itself all the time. Because when it says no on Monday and then it gets to yes on Thursday, it has to basically undercut all of the rationales it had been providing the press, you know, in the intervening period. But, you know, I think another myth is, um, you know, that Putin has this kind of firm grasp on the situation. You know, he's the master strategist. He plays three dimensional chess while judo chopping his opponent. He, he looks like a complete and utter ass. He's an idiot. You know, what he could have achieved in 2014 in Ukraine, I mean, get rid of Yanukovych, who was a busted flush as a client and a crook, a, a crook even by Russian standards, right? I mean, how many billions of dollars did he make off with when he defected to, to, to Moscow? And just, you know, use your influence peddling. People forget the party of regions campaigned <laughs> on signing the association agreement, right? right? Their, camp, their, their flag or their banner was intermingled with the European Union flag. And Yanukovych didn't take that decision in the campaign season without getting a buyer leave from the master in the Kremlin, right? So Putin decided to change his mind that all of a sudden right. Ukraine can't become even more in economically integrated with Europe. And instead of doing the tried and true methods of, I know this is a cliche, but I, I'm at a loss for any other alternative term, hybrid warfare of intelligence mm -hmm. operations, bribery, influence campaigns, et cetera. That was all working. It was all he decides, no, I'm going to take Crimea and then I'm going to kickstart a dirty war in Donbass using cosplay FSB fascists. And I mean, it, it just it all went to dust. And where does he stand now? I mean, you know, it, you keep hearing that, oh, that he's going to inject half a million soldiers into they, they don't have the capacity for forced regeneration. You can send. 18 year 18 year olds from Novosibirsk and give them you know rusty carbine rifles from you know their grandfather's Afghan adventure in the 70s that does not a soldier make that's just fresh meat for the grinder right um, it's taken them how long to now it, it looks like they're close to to possibly sacking Bakhmut although I just got off the phone this morning with a source in Ukrainian military intelligence who says we're not withdrawing we're in fact we're reinforcing the line there but they're not achieving their goals and it's costing them way way more i mean what was the statistic it was like for every 2 meters 
or, or of territory that the Russians take, they lose like two to three hundred soldiers. That's right. not sustainable in the long term. But he doesn't seem to care. He's not going to care until he realizes what this has cost him, because I think also Putin is now he still believes his own propaganda and he's still being misled with respect to intelligence. Um, you know, I mean, that's if only the czar knew. Right. You know, right. This, is, this is a perennial problem. David, you wanted to add something before we shift into the second half? Yeah, just real quick. Uh, uh, look, Putin, as a result of of his invasion last year, has seen a decline in Russian influence in Ukraine. Of course, he's united Ukraine more than ever. He did that actually going back to 2014, but even more so now. Um, Moldova is on alert um, for Russian moves there. Belarus, the people there have turned against him uh, going back to 2020 with the election we've already talked about. He's lost uh, influence in Armenia, which doesn't view Russia as a reliable partner anymore. Um, Azerbaijan has always had its issues. Central Asia, he's losing influence there. Uh, Takayev didn't feel a need to right. pay him back in supporting the invasion after Putin intervened to Takayev in Kazakhstan. Sadly, and this really pains me given how much time I've spent in Georgia, Georgia right. is the only country where Russian influence seems to be rising. And uh, that's a problem. Uh, mostly because of the leadership in Georgia, starting with Benzina Ivanashvili. So that's a sad commentary, mostly about Georgia. Uh, but overall, I would say Russian influence and standing in the region and around the globe have taken a real hit. Yeah, except the global south. But the Georgia and Moldova piece is something I very much want to dive into in the future. There's a good way to segue into our second half. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, the senior correspondent at Yahoo News and Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and is currently working on a new book that I'm dying to read about Russia's GRU. Michael's also the author of a recent report from Yahoo News about Russia's planned takeover of Belarus. And joining us from Dallas in the great state of Texas is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, and Russia and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us, for now, on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Сегодняшняя встреча проходит в очень непростое время, требующее новых нестандартных подходов, ответственных политических решений. Они должны быть направлены прежде всего на недопущение скатывания бальному противостоянию, в котором не будет победителей. So in your report, Michael, you uh, cited all of our good friend, Michael Carpenter, the current U.S. ambassador to the OSCE, as saying the following. Russia's goals with regard to Belarus are the same as with Ukraine, only in Belarus it relies on coercion rather than war. Its end goal is still wholesale incorporation. Uh, end quote. The Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been clear. 
sanction Russia, arm Ukraine, assist it with intelligence sharing, training, and diplomatic support and economic aid. And that strategy appears to be working. But in the case of Belarus, the strategy is much less clear. The United States and its allies appear to be treating Belarus already as a de facto extension of Russia. David, we've seen different approaches to Lukashenko's Belarus over the year. We've tried ostracizing and isolating it. We tried limited engagement from 2015 to 2020. You were in government for much of this. What are our options as you see them? And what should we be doing with regard to Belarus that we are not doing? I think we should treat Lukashenko as a complicit partner of Putin. And if we are pursuing Putin for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, we should put Lukashenko in the dock right next to him. Um, it seems to me that Lukashenko has Ukrainian blood on his hands for allowing Russian forces to use Belarusian territory for launching part of the invasion. And there have been attacks from Belarus territory uh, that have led to war crimes and crimes against humanity. So Lukashenko should be treated, I think, as, uh, as complicit in this. Um, I, I think we've talked already about the importance of helping Ukraine win, which I think is the best way to help the people of Belarus. But I think we also need to tighten the sanctions and we also need to uh, do what we can to encourage defections from Belarus's security forces, the KGB, as Michael rightly pointed out, um, but also from the Belarusian military. I think we already see strong resistance inside Belarus to the extent that it can exist. Keep in mind what a brutal regime this is with over 1,400 political prisoners in Belarus these days. Um, but it is it is a place where I think we could encourage people to defect if we say to them, there is a brighter future if you make the right choice here. But there's also a dark future if you make the wrong choice. And I do think that there are opportunities to encourage defectors inside Belarus's KGB and in and, and the military. Um, we also, I, I regret that, and maybe we tried, um, I haven't seen reports about it. We should have told the Chinese that hosting Lukashenko was a really bad idea. Um, and I don't know what it gets China, quite frankly, uh, politically, other than it makes China, it, it increases the worries about China that it might intervene on Russia's side. So uh, we need to do, I think, a little better job of making it clear to countries with whom we have diplomatic relations that uh, hosting uh, Putin is obviously out of the question, but hosting uh, Lukashenko should also be out of the question. Michael, do you see a strategy with regard to Belarus other than like um, than, than uh, you know, helping Ukraine win is the obvious, as David pointed out. But all these things David was talking about, encouraging defections, do you see a strategy right now? Or is the, does, it, does it appear like the allies are basically flying blind here? Uh, yes, but I, I would put it like this. Um, one of the sort of uh, lessons of this war is how you can turn vice into virtue. And insofar as Ukraine is not yet a member of the European Union, not yet a member of NATO, but in an active state of war with Russia, uh, the more that Ukraine wins that war and the more its resources have been opened up to do other things, you know, this is going to be the premier military in all of Europe for generations, right? Given what it's sustained, what it's had to go through. It's also going to be one of the most um, competent, creative, battle-tested intelligence apparatuses in all of Europe, particularly Ukraine's military intelligence service, GUR. The things that they are able to do that, say, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are not able to do, 
because they're kinetic in some respects and perhaps seen as too provocative uh, in others uh, is, is pretty vast. I mean, look at these drone strikes that are taking place inside Russia, right? I mean, Ukraine can get away with it, quote unquote, get away with it because it's in an active state of combat. Who's to say Ukraine can't start doing similar things inside Belarus? Uh, where, as I said earlier, there is a much greater amenability to the Ukrainian argument and the anti-Russian argument than there is inside Russian Federation territory, right? So, I mean, if I were in sort of the cockpit in, in Brussels, uh, either at the EU or NATO level, I'd be getting a message to Lukashenko that, you know, A, we're going to help Ukraine defeat Russia, and B, we're not going to restrain Ukraine if they want to take it out on you in some manner and destabilize your regime, which they have infinite capacity to do. Right. That would set the cat amongst the pigeons. And I also I, th I think, you know, it'd be fair warning, you know, and, and as we say, if, if, if Belarus is a co-combatant, which I would absolutely characterize them as such, then they have some responsibility here they ha and culpability and, and there's going to be um, repercussions. Right. Uh, so I would I would, I would you know, use. Ukraine as the cornerstone issue right now. I mean, you can put Belarus kind of on the shelf for a moment, because if, we if we're considering it part of Russian Federation territory, then fine. But if Ukraine wins the war, that opens up all kinds of new possibilities for what could happen in that neck of the woods. And again, we, we do not restrain Ukraine from doing things that no other Western partner could get away with, with impunity, right? right? right. Ukraine is, is able to Right. No, I, I tend to agree with you, Michael, on this, but I want to kind of throw this to David as a former diplomat, albeit a very hawkish one. Um, I, I want to th does that carry risks that could alien to, to kind of take the fight to Belarus and to encourage the Ukrainians to take the fight to Belarus? Does that risk alienating sympathetic populations inside of Belarus? It does. It is a risk. Um, and and as Michael was was talking about it, I was thinking that that could be a downside. The the counter to that, of course, is that um, whoever is attacking Ukraine has to understand that they don't have sanctuary, whether they are in Crimea, which is part of Ukraine, or in Russia, or as Michael points out, in Belarus. And otherwise, you're you're essentially saying you have a green light to attack Ukraine if you are in Belarus or if you're in Russia. So the Russian attackers need to understand that there is no sanctuary. This is this is simple self-defense. And so I think the Ukrainians would need to make sure they accompany it with a very strong messaging campaign to make it clear to the people of Belarus that any, any uh, response, any attack on uh, Belarus site is because there was an attack on Ukraine right. in the first place, and that it is not an attack on the people of Belarus, but on those who launched first. Right. It, the, the Ukrainians have gone out of their way to try to keep Belarus from joining the campaign. They have resisted additional sanctions against uh, the Lukashenko regime. They are concerned, should Lukashenko join, that that would complicate their ability to defend their territory when they're trying to deal with the east and the south. So for Ukraine, Belarus is a is a real dilemma. But um, I think Ukrainian forces, if, if they are attacked, should have every right to self-defense, whether that comes from any other place outside of Ukrainian territory. And David, I think that would be very effective if we coordinated with those all, all those other things you were talking about before, right? The encouragement of defections in the security services and the armed forces. If all those things are done in tandem, 
that could turn out to be an extremely uh, effective strategy. Keeping my eye on the clock, very mindful that David has to leave us soon. But one more thing I wanted to do before we rack, rack, uh, wrap up. Uh, this wasn't the old Mike, Michael's a bit prolific. He 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 write. He, I, I I'm I'm envious of how prolific he is as somebody who's trying to write his own book and it's going really slowly. Um, and you produced another article, another very provocative, revealing, and quite frankly, somewhat bizarre, even for this part of the world story this week for Yahoo News about an Estonian prisoner that for some reason, which I could not figure out reading your story a couple of times, that Russia actually incorrectly and intentionally identified as a spy. This is just a little aside before we wrap it up, but Michael, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that very interesting report. It's weird, but I, I think it's actually quite straightforward. So uh, this guy, Danilov, uh, he's just a, a career criminal, an ethnic Russian who grew up in Estonia. He was arrested and tried and convicted of robbing a jewelry store in, I think, 2014. But there was a, um, a reprieve in his sentence. So he had some time not before he went to prison. And he decided to take that time to travel to St. Petersburg, got up to no good there. He was also a, a narcotics trafficker um, going back several years. So, you know, he claims, oh, he was arrested on a, quote, business trip to Murmansk, um, you know, just a few years ago. He was a fugitive, I should say, uh, for several years from Estonia. The Russians claim they couldn't find him. They didn't know where he was. The Estonians put in an extradition order. They got a reply. Sorry, he's gone to ground or whatever. Then he turns up in Murmansk and gets arrested by the FSB. Uh, they raid his apartment. He claims the the drugs they planted on me, which, again, it's the FSB. So sure, could be or could be he gen genuinely had he's drugs. He's also a drug dealer. So yeah. He's also a drug dealer, right. So it's not, it's not too far-fetched. Then he gets um, you know detained. And in his detention they alight upon an opportunity, right? Which is, okay, the Estonians want him back. We'll send him back. But before we send him back, let's get him on record saying, oh, actually, I'm an Estonian spy. So they record this confession from him. He claims, well, he alluded very strongly to the fact that it was coerced quite violently. Alexander Tautz, who's the head of counterintelligence in Kapo, the Estonian FBI, also suggested that he had been beaten in, in uh, FSB custody. So he records this video. They blur the face, though, when they decide after they hand him back to the Estonians and he's been sat in the prison cell for several months. They came out, I think, in July of last year and the FSB in Murmansk aired the video of his quote unquote confession. And they, they made it seem like they just caught an Estonian agent in Murmansk when, in fact, he's been sat in Tallinn prison for several months as a convicted jewel thief and you know former drug trafficker. So this whole thing is just a fugazi information operation where the FSB wants to pretend like they're catching spies, right, in this hypervigilant climate of, you know, we are under assault by NATO and the, the malign forces of the West. They've infiltrated us. They're using ethnic Russians, our compatriots against us, et cetera, et cetera. But they're so lazy and, frankly, indifferent to their laziness that they, they pick a guy who's clearly been located elsewhere whilst he was alleged to have been spying in Russian territory. So we, we asked FSB Murmansk, hey, you know, when did you catch this spy? Because we broke it to him that he's a spy in Estonian jail. No, no reply. You'll be shocked to learn. But again, it just it just goes to the point of how the FSB applies its trade, right? They can be, as I say, a little sloppy, a little lazy, indifferent to whether or not they get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I have a quote here from um, Dan Hoffman, former station chief in Moscow, and also Tallinn, 
who said for their purposes in terms of um, a sending a message back to Moscow to Lubyanka that they're doing their job and they're they're on a war footing in terms of counterintelligence a plus also in terms of convincing the Russian population that they are under this constant threat of foreign infiltration penetration right. by NATO also a plus because the average Russian is not going to read Yahoo News to find out that this whole thing was just Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it, it's again, it's, it's a, weird. It's 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 a weird. Know. So I couldn't I couldn't resist just kind of bringing that up to, to, to wrap us up. I, I have like wondered their audience was obviously the domestic audience, but it just it just seems like a lot of effort for very little payback. David, since you got to go, I'll give the last word to you so you can determine how long how long we go and uh, any anything you want to add uh, before we wrap it up. No, the, the only thing I would say, Brian, is um We've got to stop this talk about negotiations, territorial compromises. You're hearing another flurry of this for Ukraine. That's horrible for Ukraine. It's bad for Belarus. Uh, We've been talking about Belarus in this whole program. Um, And so if we want to see these countries actually enjoy the freedom that uh, we enjoy, then we have to help Ukraine defeat Russia. And, and that's in our interest. It's in the interest of all the people in these countries, except for Putin and Lukashenko. That's a message all three of us have been putting out there pretty consistently and trying to encourage others to do so as well. And we're, we're starting to see a little bit of that. So we'll see going forward. On that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS Inside the Army of Terror and is currently working on a new book that I'm dying to read about Russia's GRU. And joining us from Dallas in the great state of Texas has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasia Affairs, where he worked on Belarus Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David served as executive director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole hell of a lot smarter. Thanks very much. Thanks, man. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance League as the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the Power the Podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 